friends, and welcome to another episode of Faith in You, You, the podcast for everyone. My name is Reverend McKinley Sims. I serve as the minister at the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Restoration in Mount Airy in beautiful Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's the end of February, and I am posting the sermon that I delivered yesterday, February 24th, in honor of the end of Black History Month, and a talk at Restoration about the need for reparations in our country, for racial reconciliation, for gender equality, for all manner of oppressions that we inhabit on one another. This is a sermon that was given in our church yesterday. I hope that you find it meaningful. I hope that it sparks debate, and I hope that it paves the way for a series of talks and conversations that we might have, both as a country and as individuals, as Unitarian Universalists, as people of faith, on what we need to do, what things we need to own, what courage we need to have, and what grace we need to extend to one another to have a conversation about righting some wrongs, repairing harm. Of note, in this sermon, I gave a story about headbutting a friend into a pile of sand. That's where some of these allusions come from. Hope you enjoy. There's a comedian that I like named Ron White. And it's not just because he is from Fritch, Texas, near where I'm from, but that is part of it. And he has a kind of signature go-to joke where he says, you can fix a lot of things, but you can't fix stupid. He also has this delivery where he will run into a joke and then he'll kind of speed it up. And it goes like, you know, I was going along minding my own business and then I forgot. You ever forget? Happened to me. So I was arguing with someone on Facebook. You ever argued with someone on Facebook? It happened to me. And this argument was over what you usually argue, uh, systemic racism and the role of whiteness in America. It was specifically over a post asking white folks here in America to think about, to be reflective of the ways in which we have been socialized to be racist, regardless of how we think or feel, because it is a socialization that we all receive. Just think about it. Have a conversation. Woo! I tell you, there's a lot of feedback on that. But for our people of color here, does that sound about right? Yeah. For the white people here, could you imagine people getting defensive about that? Yeah. Woo! A lot of people were upset about that, about having a conversation. And I was a little dismayed at what I perceived as ignorance, but I had to think back to a time when I was that ignorant. Because we're not taught to talk about whiteness in America. We're not taught to talk about whiteness as white people. There's a lot of what Robin D'Angelo calls white fragility, a lot of upset, because whiteness has been the norm. It hasn't been something we've had to talk about. That's part of the privilege. But, I feel that we are starting to have the conversation with more and more clarity and more and more energy than maybe since the civil rights movement. We're starting to think about what it means to struggle with race in a very concrete way. Here and now in this congregation, Brenda Ridley's reflection last week spoke to this so eloquently that I'm really just adding to her words with this. So if you have not listened to it, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But let's talk about what anti-racist action looks like. The eighth principle, in action, here and now. 
We're starting to have that conversation about what it looks like to dismantle these systems of white supremacy within us and within our institutions. So, we are asked to be humble, to be reflective as white persons, but also to be effective, to not just sit in guilt or discomfort, but to come to the table, as Brenda said, and to stay at the table knowing that you're probably going to make mistakes. You're probably going to headbutt someone into the sandpit. And that's uncomfortable, and it causes harm. And for our people of color, coming to the table requires bravery and courage and knowing that you're going to get hurt, that you're going to be the recipient of harm, but coming to the table anyways. And for all of us, it requires a kind of grace that goes before. So we're going to do this, and it's going to be messy, but we need to have the conversation. So when we talk about this, we're asking for grace, for you, for me, for us, for all. But having the conversation, like I did on Facebook, you ever get in a Facebook argument? It happened to me. What I noticed, the sticking point was for people, was this idea of systemic racism. I don't know what that is. I get defensive because it feels like you're trying to punish me. Like I'm being punished for something I didn't do. It was unintentional. It was way in the past. I'm being punished for things that my ancestors did. I don't want to be punished. I don't want to have to sit out on the playground for 20 whole minutes. We have this idea in America. It comes from our criminal justice system. If you punish the offender, lock him away, that's it. It's over. Fixed it. But we know that's not how... It works. You have punitive justice. Another option is what's called restorative justice. So I'm going to focus on that. This idea of restorative justice, that to make things right, to repair the harm that was caused, that creates justice, not punishment. So as Brenda asked, the first thing that we need to do is to go inside and check in with ourselves we have done an audit of this congregation about racism and white supremacy when Bob Throne was here, I believe. We're planning on doing another one. That's an important institutional step, something we should do as an American society, I believe. But we also need to do some individual work, naming times that we have caused harm, owning those, sitting with the discomfort, with the guilt, and grieving Grieving changes in relationship, losses in relationship, grieving harm done, and sitting with that. Don't just lock it away. That doesn't help. So for me, I could stand up here and list all manner of sins and times I've caused harm. But as my supervisor at St. Elizabeth's Hospital once told me, you can feel the guilt, that's fine, but the guilt's not doing anything for you. Much better to accept responsibility and do something with that. So, I want to exercise a little vulnerability, a little ministerial privilege, and tell you my race story and how I think it formed the basis for reparative justice. So as a white guy with the last name Sims, I'm gonna tell you about how my family came to America. I got interested in genealogy a few years ago 
and I did some research, and I was especially interested in the Sims name. I don't know a whole lot about. So I found out I have ancestors in Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Virginia, and Antigua. Antigua. George Sims, 1681, S-Y-M-E-S, before the name was changed. Captain George Sims. Antigua. Boat captain. White guy. Does not take a lot to put two and two together, friends. So I needed to delve into this. And I found a book on Antigua that lists all the plantations from history. Wakering Hall, St. Peter's Parish, Antigua. It was uh, given to my great times 10 grandfather, Captain George Sims. He died and it was sold off to another person through my grandmother, but it would eventually enslave 368 people before emancipation in 1834. That is something I have to sit with and grieve and wrestle with. The harm caused literally in my name. So as the fragile people on Facebook pointed out to me, well, you can't fix the past. You can't fix stupid. Why are we bringing this up? It's in the past. You didn't do it. So I thought this was maybe like a modern assumption. Maybe this was something that's come around post-civil rights movement, maybe, when talk of restorative justice is really ramped up. But I found a quote from the year 1810 from the president of a place called Yale, Timothy Dwight, he says, It is vain to allege that our ancestors brought them hither, and not we. We inherit our ample patrimony with all its encumbrances and are bound to pay the debts of our ancestors. This debt in particular, we are bound to discharge. And when the righteous judge of the universe comes to reckon with his servants, he will rigidly exact the payment at our hands to give them liberty and stop here is to entail upon them a curse. They, of course, he's referring to African Americans, but they is also white people in America, everyone in America, a curse. Not a bacteria, an offender, something you can cure, something you can punish and lock away and fix, a curse. So Facebook friends, you are right. You cannot fix stupid, you cannot fix the past. That's when I turned to Alice Walker, whose words we heard earlier. She was speaking with her mom, who said, you cannot fix the past, and she said, yes, you cannot fix the past, but that is why revolutions exist. So I want to posit that we need some revolutionary thinking, some revolutionary love that seeks to repair and to restore harm done, that creates justice for all, does not simply punish offenders and lock them away. So what would it look like for us to have this conversation here on a small scale? What would it look like for us to tell the stories of our ancestors, not just the good stuff, but the awful stuff too, the true stuff, to begin restorative justice work by bearing out what we have, by coming to the table, 
committing to naming harms, and then committing to on-the-ground actions to do some reparative work to reparations. Not just as a country, but here in our church, too. And that word reparations carries a lot of weight. In 2014, ta Coates wrote the article in The Atlantic called The Case for Reparations. Has anybody read that? Mm-hmm. It's fabulous. He said, as a nation, as a nation clothed in whiteness, white supremacy, as an American society to repent of past sins, to make amends, we need to do something about reparations. But it starts with having the conversation. So I found out that H.R. Bill, House of Representatives Bill 40, has been brought to every congressional session for the last I don't know how many years. Right? Sheila Jackson Lee of Houston, Texas, 18th Congressional District, brought it this session. It is designed to just study the idea of reparations for African Americans. Just to study it. Not to appropriate assent, not to make any recommendations, just to study it. And it's never made it out of committee. We can't even have the conversation as a country. But it started to pick up a little bit with a little more frequency, a little more clarity, and with a little bit more than just macro-level talk with specific ideas. So I want to say that we should talk about some of these ideas. We should talk about specific policy endeavors that we ought to endorse, that we ought to demand from our leaders. Direct monetary compensation, but not just money in pockets, job training programs, student debt forgiveness, Minimum wage raises, repeals of mandatory minimums that incarcerate people of color at a higher rate for nonviolent offenses than their white counterparts. All of that should be on the table. And it shouldn't be just about racial reconciliation. There's all kinds of oppressions that we inhabit on one another. But in this restorative justice model, we take all these things into account that we come to the table to co-create justice with those who have been harmed and those who have caused the harm. And that takes a lot of grace and a lot of courage. So the Facebook friends say, you want me to apologize for what my ancestors did? What people I've never met did? So, okay, then I expect forgiveness. Demanding forgiveness. Because the guilt monster inside demands forgiveness so that we can return to this feeling of comfort. Not me. Sometimes weapon, uh, forgiveness is weaponized. And in this model, in restorative justice, no one should be forced to forgive. Macro level and here. Just because someone apologizes to me, I was taught that forgiveness is owed. She said she's sorry. Forgive her. Restorative justice it's based on covenant, not this contractual model. If you forgive, if you apologize, then you are forgiven. It doesn't work that way. It's not a quick fix. It's not curing the bacteria. It's not locking away the offender. Forgiveness in this model is needed because it is liberating. And it is liberating not just for the person who committed harm, although they may find that. When I am wronged, and I am able to forgive on my own terms. 
in a reparative justice and restorative justice model, I find liberation because the weight comes off my shoulders. The anxiety leaves my soul, releasing the bitterness. It's not always easy. It can be hard to forgive. That's why we shouldn't demand it. But if we can listen to one another as we struggle, and for those of us who can find ways to forgive harm that is caused to us, offering that as a model around the table for others to see and witness so that we might learn and grow together. I learned that when I forgive those who have wronged me, I find liberation, I am made whole, I am restored. For those of us who cause harm, we ought to think about What do I need to own up to? What do I need to name? What do I need to sit with? And what do I do with forgiveness if it is offered to me? What do I take from it? Am I able to accept forgiveness? Am I able to forgive myself? Forgive us our trespasses so that we may forgive those who trespass against us. Restorative justice and covenants is the model that we use in our faith where everyone gets a voice about how to make it so. You come together with an idea. Maybe it's to sing a song. Maybe it's just to apologize and forgive. Maybe it's to go around the sand pit roaring like dinosaurs. But in a beloved community, in the beloved community, restorative justice is the baseline. It is what is required. A table where grace abounds, courage sits, And we're able to tell stories. We're able to tell stories about things that we didn't know. Places like Black Wall Street in Tulsa. Great civilizations like Cahokia. Phenomenal people like Madam C.J. Walker. And Captain George Sims. All have to be brought to the table. We pray for those who have been oppressed that we might find liberation beyond just the racial reconciliation that's needed for women who have been oppressed and betrayed by progressive theology, for our LGBTQ siblings persecuted by the Christian faith especially. As we meet today, the United Methodist Church is meeting in a special conference where some people say they are either voting for someone's choice or voting on someone's humanity. It is a lot to hold. It is a big ask to make reparations, but it is not undoable. The Facebook argument about reparations always comes back to money. Oh, we can't pay for that. Ta-Nehisi Coates took some estimates ranging from hundreds of billions of dollars for monetary compensation to $7 trillion. $7 trillion. That's a lot of money. But it's also only a third of the GDP of America in one year. You spread that out 10, 15 years, that's totally doable. Hell, we could tax like 300 people here in America over five years and pay for it. It's totally doable. It's something possible. So I think we ought to demand it from ourselves and from our elected leaders. So some of the progressive presidential candidates have already signed on to this, Kamala Harris and Joaquin Castro, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I think Cory Booker might, might have said something recently. 
So as you engage in the political process, something to think about. The other half of it, of course, is how much are we as individuals willing to sign up for it? There's an organization called Coming to the Table that puts out a guide on reparations. They put one out just in January. And it has four pages of things that you could do. Some of them are small. Some of them are kind of big. Coming to the Table says you can give money directly to those affected. Direct monetary giving is one of the most effective ways of social change we've found. You can give to the ministerial discretionary fund of this community that goes to people directly affected. You can research your ancestry and fully own it to tell its story and wrestle with its history. You could run for office to pass new laws. You could organize to end mass incarceration policies. You could visit an African-American church, become in a relationship, coordinate a service project together, work through power together, to lobby or organize, partner to serve food, partner to buy a house for a family of color. You could join the sanctuary movement to help those immigrating to our country. You could support black-owned businesses here in Philadelphia, like my friend Taylor Johnson Gordon, who has an LLC called Sisters of the Yams. She teaches instinctive cooking, vegan lifestyle for black women, especially black mothers. Plug for you, Taylor. All these things are on the table, but we won't know until we have a conversation. So far, America has been unafraid, has been afraid to have it. Are we? So one time I was having a Facebook argument. You ever have a Facebook argument? It happened to me. And I don't know what will come out of it. I don't know what the resolution will be, but I know that I've entered into a one-on-one -on -one dialogue with someone who was there. We've gone back and forth sharing deeply. I don't know if it'll change his mind, but it's changed me. It's made me braver, more vulnerable, more willing to stand up and say, we need to make a change so that we can teach the next generation what it might look like to have a restorative justice model. So no, you can't change the past, but that's why revolutions exist. So I think if we call for a revolution of love and grace and justice to fight the curse that Timothy Dwight talked about, they are not quick fixes, this coming to the table and this building of relationship, but I believe they are final fixes. We can't end racism and white supremacy everywhere, not by ourselves, but we can find out how to dismantle it here if we are willing. And it starts by asking ourselves, how do we treat one another? Not just across racial lines, across gender lines, across theological lines, across age lines. How do we treat one another with courage, honesty, vulnerability, and challenge? And are we working to heal the wounds that oppression has left on all of us, regardless of social status? I'm part of a, a, an online group that meets to talk about dismantling white supremacy within ourselves as faith leaders especially as white male faith leaders. And one of the things we talk about is how this white, heteronormative, cisgender, capitalist patriarchy, bell hooks, how it affects everyone and oppresses everyone. Some of us fare better in the short term, but all of us 
are wounded in some way. Something to reckon with. All of us in need of liberation. So in preparation for reparations, let us work on doing it one day at a time. Coming to the table every day. Drawing on courage every day. Because you cannot fix stupid. But we can learn and grow and heal together. So we need a little revolutionary love. We need a lot of grace. And we need restorative justice. So it seems the most appropriate way to exit African American History Month here in America by talking about justice, by talking about reparations, and by offering up a cure for that curse. As so many oppressions are continuously forced on people of color, if we're not talking about it, we're not doing our job. So the curse left by white supremacy and slavery, by colonization, by systemic racism, the curse that ta Coates writes about, Alice Walker speaks to. We'll end with this. She writes, let me tell you, I intend to protect my home, praying, not a curse, only the hope that my courage and my love will be felt. But if by some miracle and all our struggle, the earth is spared, only justice to every living thing and everything is alive will save humankind. But we are not saved yet. Only justice can stop a curse. May it be so. Amen. For more from Reverend McKinley, you can follow him on Twitter at McKinley L. Sims. Send him an email at McKinley.L.Sims at gmail.com. Or check out his website, uuministry.com backslash McKinley Sims. Can you wait?